Jesus is an incredible fixer-upper. And he looks into our lives and he sees things right off the bat and he says, you know what? Dave would be happier if he did this. I could just tweak that. I could remodel this. I could make these adjustments and changes quite easily, actually. But if you would only allow me to get started, if you'd only give me permission, if you'd only give me access. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He doesn't barge in. He doesn't say, hey, 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 here I come. Nope. He stands politely as a gentleman at the door, and he knocks. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. He says, I long to have a relationship, but I'm not going to force myself on you. I'm not going to demand it or require it. It's going to be your choice. And so that fundamental choice comes down to you and I, and it comes to us today and every day. And the question is, what are we going to do with that choice? Change. Pastor, I don't like change. I like what's familiar. I like the things that I'm used to and accustomed to. But what is that essentially saying about our trust in God as he's knocking at our heart's door? Well, he might do something I don't like. He might take away those things that I very much enjoy. We're basically saying I don't trust that he has my best interest at heart. So the safest place to leave that person is outside. That's why I have a lock on the door. I only let people in that I trust. But friends, Jesus is the great fixer-upper. And the essential question is, do you want to be made whole? Isn't that the essential question? Do you want to be made whole? I mean, it's not, can I be made whole? It's not, is there somebody out there that's willing to take on the task? It's a very simple, it's a very basic question. Do you want to be made whole? This morning, I want to look at the story in John chapter 5. There's other aspects of this story that we probably will not take the time to get into, but I want to look at the first part of this story that takes place. The title in your Bible might be similar to mine, A Man Healed at the Pool of Bethesda. We were just there a few months ago. It was a Sabbath day, just like in our story. It tells us in verse 9. And we, as well, came through the Sheep Gate. It's on the north side of the Temple Mount of the city. And so it's kind of at the top end. I mean, the the lower end is taller and higher, and that's where more of the, the main entrances were. And so this north end is kind of the backside, if you will, of the Temple Mount. And so the Sheep Gate was called that because the sacrifices often would come in through that gate. And there was a pool there, and it became so popular that they expanded this place. And we read about it here in John chapter 5, beginning verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, 
waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. And then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Verse 5, now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. This is what the site looks like now. If you're not familiar, Jerusalem has been built on top of many, many times. And I believe is when the, the Muslims kind of took things over. They didn't want the Temple Mount to be so high and removed. And so they built on top of a lot of the existing Jerusalem, which is still underneath all of that. Sometimes you can even access and do a dig in Jerusalem underneath the, the city that everyone's using today. But this story in John chapter 5 has been under some scrutiny for some time, saying there's no place in Jerusalem that fits this story. It can't be true. Until they unearthed and uncovered exactly what the Bible describes. In the 20th century, they found two pools with five porches. Lo and behold, it is true and accurate. Was it just as accurate before the archaeologists found and made the discovery? It was. And this is maybe a depiction, if you will. You have the Temple Mount here on our left, and then Behind, we're actually looking at the north side here, even though it may appear to be the south side. You have these two pools, if you will. And if we zoom in on those two pools, this is um, kind of a model, if you will, of what it may have looked like. And it was called Bethesda. It was laid out in an uneven rectangle, 165 feet by 220 feet wide, that's the uneven part, by 315 feet long, hewn entirely out of rock surrounded by colonnades on all four sides and divided by a fifth colonnade in the center. And this pool was fed by an underground intermittent stream. And so anything, if you know anything about an intermittent stream, sometimes it bubbles and gurgles and does all of these things when the water begins to flow again. Yet there is this idea that has developed, this tradition that when the water gurgles, it's an angel, and the first one in the pool is healed. We'll come back to that. Bethesda, well, Beth, if you study words, means house of. We have lots of Beths in Scripture or, or, or cities that start with Beth. Esda means mercy. This is the house of mercy. We have Bethlehem, house of bread. Bethsaida, house of fish. Beth Shemesh, house of the sun. Bethel, house of God. And we read about who is there. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Really what this ended up being was a human garbage dump. And it was avoided by most. And you can understand why. Because of the sights and the smells. It was not pleasant. It was uncomfortable. Here are people that nobody knows what to do with. And so let's take them there. Maybe there is some, some chance, some stretch, if you will, that when there's this stirring of the water, they could be healed. Another reason to avoid it is I don't want to become ceremonially unclean on my way to the temple, never mind the fact that it's a depressing place to be and they're asking for money and begging and all the rest. I'm just going to avoid it altogether. Let me ask you, what would it be, certainly in our time, but what would it mean back then? to be blind or lame or paralyzed. Who's going to hire a blind man? Who's going to employ somebody that is lame, unable? And perhaps the paralyzed is the most worst off of all. 
To be paralyzed means some part of the body is not capable of movement. You can tell it anything you want from up here, but there's no response down below. It might be from the waist down. It could be from the neck down. But it is a total lack of control of a part of the body. We could use words like powerless, helpless, incapable, unable. I'm just going to pause our story there for a minute. Is there any area of your life that you lack control? Is there an area in your life that you are incapable, that you yourself feel helpless and unable? You're so accomplished in these areas, and you try and polish those areas as best you can, but there's an area in your life that you feel powerless, unable, paralyzed, a total lack of control. I mean, we can be real here. I mean, this is a nice painting, but it's been sterilized a bit, hasn't it? I mean, it's bad enough to be a paraplegic in the 21st century, but how much worse in Bible times? There's no place in Jerusalem that's even. There are stairs everywhere, cobblestones, hard surfaces. There were certainly mobility problems, livelihood problems, social isolation personal hygiene problems. Paraplegics frequently do not have bowel and bladder control. Without help, and assuming he he could use his hands, he would have to drag himself from place to place. His legs would be withered and wasted away. His hands would be calloused and hardened from pulling himself along, and the stench would have been enormous. His life would have been one of agony. And add to the mix that his theology about God is upside down. Now, I can tell you that the earliest manuscripts do not have the last part of the third verse or the fourth verse. It's not there. They think a copyist added it later to help us better understand this stirring of the waters that's mentioned uh, down below. But this idea of God, that God helps those who help themselves. In fact, it's a first come, first serve basis. In fact, God helps the stronger and gives disadvantage to the weaker. 38 years he's had this infirmity. And how long he's been here at the pool, we do not know. I imagine he's tried everything. He's gone to anyone that has any ounce of hope of something that could be done. But at the end of the day, what can be done? Finally, I imagine someone has pity on him and brings him to the pool of Bethesda. On top of all of this, we have this idea. Let's read verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there, this is a Sabbath day. Jesus is going out of his way to find this group of people. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Here's a picture of Jesus going out of his way in search of people that needed his help. They were not the elite of society. They could not help his ministry politically or financially or in any other way. These were truly the least of these. Yet we find Jesus seeking them out. From Desire of Ages 201 and 202, we read, He longed Jesus to exercise his healing power and make every sufferer whole. 
That day he goes in there and he sees everybody crowded around looking for some kind of hope, some kind of healing from their ailment. And society has cast them out. They said, this is the place for you. Stay here. And maybe when the water stirs and Jesus comes in and he says, I want to heal them all. But it was the Sabbath day. And multitudes were going to the temple for worship. And he knew that such an act of healing would so excite the prejudice of the Jews as to cut short his work. It would have happened too. You read about what happens with just this one man after the fact. They're upset. Had he healed everybody, a riot would have broken out. And that would have been it. But it's interesting to me that Jesus decides to heal somebody anyway. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems that whenever Jesus takes initiative to heal someone, the healing comes on Sabbath. There's other places when people come to him, but when he takes the initiative, oftentimes he does it on Sabbath. There was another paralytic in Matthew 9 who was on the Sabbath. The man with the withered hand in Matthew 12 was on the Sabbath. The demon-possessed man, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law in Mark 1, both on the Sabbath. Jesus healed a crippled woman in Luke 13 on the Sabbath. Jesus healed a man with dropsy in Luke 14 on the Sabbath. Yes, Jesus did good on the Sabbath. Continue with the quote, but the Savior saw one case of supreme wretchedness. It would stand to reason, wouldn't it? If you're going to pick out one, let's pick out the worst of the worst. The one that perhaps has suffered more than anyone has suffered saw one case of supreme wretchedness. It was that of a man who had been helpless cripple for 38 years. This is virtually, in that time, his entire life. His disease was in a great degree the result of his own sin and was looked upon as a judgment from God. Talk about kicking somebody when they're down. You are being judged by God. And why wouldn't he feel that way? It's because of his own sinful behavior that he's in that situation to begin with. What was he doing? Well, it doesn't tell us. Maybe he was skydiving drunk, Glenn and Larry. Maybe he didn't pack his parachute right. I don't know, but there was some... I'm not saying that skydiving is sinful. But there was some sinful practice in his life that he was participating in, something he knew better, and it caused this condition. And now for 38 years, he's had time to rehearse and to regret his decision and say, I'm being judged by God. I mean, the scripture supports this very thing. When later he finds him in the temple and he says, see, you have made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Sin no more, lest a worse thing. So do you want to be made whole? The choice is yours. The power is available, but I'm not going to push. I'm not going to twist your arm. I'm simply going to offer. So Jesus picks out the worst case scenario. And he said to him, do you want to be made well. And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. I've been stepped over and stepped over and stepped over so many times. People just look past me. Do I want to be made whole? I mean, doesn't this seem like a ridiculous question to ask? But friends, in all the power of divinity, he is bound by the choice of humanity. Will we let him in or not? So the man has come to the house of mercy, but he's found no mercy. His condition is a result of his sin. And so he keenly feels judgment, condemnation, shame, a clear sense that he deserves this and he is cast off from God. What else is there to do? What else can he do? Yes, the man has come to the house of mercy, but he's found no mercy. But Jesus has shown up. And he longs to show him mercy. Society has cast him off as a hopeless case. 
the most hopeless case. Yet Jesus specializes in hopeless cases. And he asks him a simple question. He leans over and in tenderness and compassion asks, do you want to be made well? What he doesn't realize is he doesn't need to get into the pool. The pool has just come to him. The living water is standing before him. Do you want to be made well? Do you want life and want it more abundantly? Do you trust me to do a work in you? Do I have your permission to go to work? Do I have permission to make changes in your life? Do I have permission to remodel, if you will? I can see the best before and after, if you'll just let me. It's a simple question. It's a basic question. It's a no-brainer, it seems. Do you want to be made whole? But too often, our answer is no. Not today. Maybe tomorrow. Not now. Later. We say it in other ways. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. I'm not sure I want that. And so we suffer in our condition, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades. And Jesus keeps asking, do you want to be made whole? Can I remodel your life? Can I make some drastic changes? I know you'll love it if you'll just give it a chance. But we make excuses. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. They step over top of me. Lord, I'm a hopeless case. I'm all alone. I'm abandoned. Abandonment hurts. Especially when you feel if someone would just stay by long enough to help you into the water, there'd be hope. If somebody from the church would just come by and give me just this little help that I need, I'd be fine. All my problems would be solved, but there's nobody. And so in abandonment and in hurt and in judgment, I sit here in my own waste. No one seems to care. Steps to Christ 47, glorious little book. It says, many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? Perhaps some of you are saying, I desire to give myself, right? It says, you desire to give yourself to him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt, and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I'm weak in moral power. I'm in slavery to doubt. I'm controlled by the habits. I am paralyzed. Maybe you can relate to this. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you. It's exactly what the devil wants to do. You're going to try again, huh? It's going to be an epic fail this time. And so we make another promise, but it's like a rope of sand. It disintegrates before us. And we're left feeling embarrassed and shameful yet again. Verse 8, returning to our story. Jesus hears his excuse. He's asking him, do you want to be made well? Now Jesus gives him the opportunity. He says to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. Don't just get up, but go ahead and take your things because you're not going to need to be here anymore. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. This is incredible. Ministry of Healing 84 says the man might have said, Lord, if that will make me whole, I will obey thy word. Lord, if you'll just heal me first, I'll be more than happy to follow through on your command. If you would have said this, she writes, he might have stopped to doubt 
and thus have lost his one chance of healing. I don't know about you, but this tells me doubt is the enemy. When the Lord asks you to do something that's impossible, do it anyway. I don't see how this is going to work. Do it anyway. He doesn't understand. Do it anyway. This is physically impossible. Do it anyway. But no, he believed Christ's word. He believed that he was made whole. And immediately he made the effort. And God gave the power. He willed to walk. And he did walk. Acting on the word of Christ, he was made whole. Acting on the word of Christ. Lord, my heart tells me this. My friends tell me that. But your word says. And so I'm acting on the word of Christ. I'm standing alone on the promises of God, taking God at his word, trusting that God cannot lie, trusting that there is no thing as a hopeless case, trusting that what he is asking is for your best. Act on the word. Well, I want to I get the full picture. And when I get the full picture and when I understand everything, then I'll act on everything. It doesn't work that way. You act on what he's given you today. And that will empower you to act on what he gives you tomorrow and the next day and the next day until he comes. Don't doubt the word. Don't ignore the word. Don't go to the world in search of mercy. Go to Jesus, our merciful high priest. And you might say, yes, but I feel powerless. I'm paralyzed in sin. Do not wait to feel that you are made whole. Believe the Savior's words. Put your will on the side of Christ. Will to serve him. And in acting upon his word, you will receive strength. Do you believe those words this morning? Then how come so many of us hedge our bets and say, Lord, you prove it first, and then I'll stand. You prove it first, and then I'll pick up my bed. You prove it first. And God says, no, you act on the word of God and see if I will not give you the power and the strength to overcome and do the impossible. I'm the fixer upper, he says. Whatever may be the evil practice, the master passion, which through long indulgences binds both soul and body, Christ is able and longs to deliver. He will impart life to the soul that is dead in trespasses. Do you believe that this morning? Is he able? Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession, that's sanctuary language, intercession for them. It doesn't say he has pretty good odds. It says he's able. How about 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9? My grace is sufficient for you. Somehow we think this fixer-upper doesn't have powerful, enough power tools or enough power in his power tools to get the job done. And Jesus says, I have more power at my disposal than you can even think or imagine. My grace, my power, my strength is sufficient for you. Do you want to be made whole? My grace shall strengthen your weakened will. When temptations assail you, when care and perplexity surround you, when depressed and discouraged, are you ready to yield to despair? Look to Jesus, friends. And the darkness that encompasses you will be dispelled by the bright shine of his presence. When sin struggles for the mastery in your soul and burdens the conscience, look to the Savior. His grace is sufficient to subdue sin. Hebrews 12, verse 1, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And you say, that's great. How do I do that? Well, the verse tells us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, look to Jesus. That's the solution. Believe when he tells you in his word and he gives you a promise. Believe and act on the promise. And then in faith, he'll supply what you lack. He longs to make intercession for you with the purchase of his own blood. The simple question we must answer is is simply, do we want to be made whole? No, I want to be in the church. I want to go through the motions. I want to have, you know, a relationship with God, but I still want to hang on to my stuff. Okay. I have something a thousand times better for you, though. Do you want to be made well? Continuing on, Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Verse 12, then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, the man that he had just healed, and said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. I can't help but think when Jesus says, see, you've been made well. I imagine he's the fixer-upper saying, see, don't you like it better? Isn't this great? You're in the temple. You haven't been able to go to the temple for 38 years. You've been unclean in every way, shape, and form. And now you're here. Isn't it wonderful? And then he gives a very careful and sensitive recommendation. Don't go back to that old lifestyle or else it may be even worse second time around. Jesus wants to help us with that too. He doesn't just leave us to figure it out on our own. But if we die daily, he'll make us whole daily. We look to Jesus. The verse we just read said he is both the author and the finisher of our faith. And so the question is simple. Will you let him in? Will you give him permission? Will you give him access? Will you be made whole? The choice is ours. It could be some grudge I've been holding on to that still is keeping me up late at night. It could be something way back in the past that I haven't made right. It could be a current issue now. It could be any host of things that you could imagine or think of. And the Holy Spirit will impress you and maybe already has impressed you what the thing is. And the question is, will you be made whole? Or are you just going to retain it? Not today, not now. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. I can think of many individuals through the years and in ministry. I'm thinking of a couple in one of the first places we did evangelism in field school, and we were assigned to this couple. She was pregnant. He was uh, working at, uh, what's that place in Medford, Oregon, where you get all the fruit Anybody remember? Anyway, it comes packaged very nicely. Harry and David's. He was working at Harry and David's, and they started coming to these meetings. And they were so sincere, and they were just soaking up everything. And every time they came across another truth, they said, I want to do that. I want to do that. And so they started giving up things. They started giving up diet things. They started to change their lifestyle. They started putting things out of the home. They started studying their Bible more. And every time they learned a new truth, they said, I believe it's true. I'm going to do it. 
And so by the end of the, the meetings, he was baptized, she was baptized, and she was pregnant at the time. We don't believe in infant baptism, but oh well, she's going to get baptized with a baby too. I can think of other people that I've studied with, and they say, oh, I usually give lessons two at a time. Well, can I have three? Can I have four? I'm just eating these things up. Where else can I get resources? I want more resources. And they're reading, they're reading, they're just inhaling this stuff, and they're making radical changes in their life. And I see the before and after picture, and I say, this is not even the same person. I could go on and on. You have seen it as well. And what is at the core of that whole process is this question, will you be made whole? Are you willing to let me in and clean up your life, or are you going to keep me at arm's length? I've had the other two. You go through one lesson, I'll think about it. The second lesson, I'll think about it. The third lesson, I'll think about it. Who would have thought you'd get through all the lessons and they'd say, I'm still not so sure. And so even now, I'm thinking of another individual I studied with years ago in another district, still has not been baptized because they're hanging on to this one issue that they will tell you, well, it seems clear to me what it says in the Bible, but I'm just not ready for that yet. They're not ready to be made whole. And that's where a lot of people end up. They want to be made part. They want to be made peace, just a little section, part of a shelf, and they want to leave it there because it's comfortable. I can still do what I want to do. I can still do the church thing. And I can feel like while I'm doing this, I'm still in God's will because, you know, there's some overlap there and everything's fine. And Jesus says, you're not where I want you to be. I want to make you whole. I want to ex you to experience the fullness of what I have died to give you. And so he stands at the door and knocks. But sometimes we have put him off on that one issue for so long, we can't even hear the knocking anymore. It just sounds like white noise. But friends, I can assure you, your best life is not in trying to keep both sides and options open. Your best life is to put both feet firmly on the side of Christ, to put your will on the side of Christ, to believe his word and then act on it, to allow him to be the author and the finisher of your faith and allow him to have full and complete access. Give him the master key so he can open any closet, any room, any drawer in your house when he says, He's not going to go and just condemn. What is it? What in the world? Pa, pa, pa. He's going to say, Dave, this needs to go. I was kind of afraid you'd ask me that. Do you want to be made whole? I do. Well, then let's get rid of it together. Okay. And over the course of a few weeks, a few months, you're not going to miss it. In fact, you're going to feel a freedom. In your personal life, you're going to feel a freedom. In your spiritual life, you're going to feel like you've been freed up to understand Scripture more than you ever have before. Why? Because I'm not holding anything back. He has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. So what are you waiting for? 38 years? And then you'll decide what's holding you back. So I told you my sermon is basic. What if we just opened our hearts to the Lord and said, come on in? I'm tired of playing games. I'm trying to pretend like I can fool you and everybody else. I just want to give you run of the place. Look a lot better with that wall taken down. Do it. Look a lot better with new flooring. Do it. You know, I'm envisioning that we'll just, we'll punch that wall out. We'll put windows all the way around. We'll take some trees down. You'll have an incredible view here you don't even know about. Do it. Act on the word. And Jesus will do something powerful in your life. He will make you whole. Act on the word of the Lord and he, you will receive strength. Act on the word of the Lord and allow him to heal you today. Friends, Christ is able and longs to deliver. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment. It's got great words. It says, to God be the glory. Great things he has done. Somebody's going to come into your remodeled life and they're going to say, wow, this is so beautiful. And you say, I didn't do it. Somebody else did it. Well, who did it? I want him to do that to my life too. 
To God be the glory, great things he hath done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let his people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory for the great things he has done. Will you let him in today? Will you be made whole? The choice is yours. Dear Heavenly Father, it would be my hope that there are many here in this room that would simply say, Lord, I want to be made whole. Perhaps we have used a variety of, of excuses. We've put off and we've put off and we've put off. But Lord, there is no good excuse. There's no good reason. Truly, what you have for us is the best for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we will trust you, that we will act on the promises of your word, and that we will trust that you then will provide the strength to bring the healing, to allow us to get on our feet, to experience you in the temple in a way that we never had before because we are hanging on. Lord, help us to open our hands and let those things go and allow you to do the work in us that you've been longing to do. Come in and do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.